0: than today. So we are going to continue our three-part series. Uh, We talked on Sunday about a true disciple, um, and then we had the opportunity to walk through the challenge to change. Tonight, we're going to understand what it means to be making or to make disciples. Now, you heard an announcement earlier on the video. Just real quick, I want to make a very practical way for you to get involved with this church with discipleship. Pastor Dave, you heard about it. It's a discipleship opportunity. It's a 12-week course. You can pop in and out at any time uh, because all of the weeks are basically, they stand on their own. And uh, it's here on Wednesday night uh, at seven o'clock with childcare provided. It's a way for you to be discipled. This is not just for the newbie or the 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 one who's just come to Christ. This is an opportunity for all of us to be discipled. I want to encourage you guys to get and be a part of this. Once again, that's Wednesday nights at seven o'clock. Would you turn in your Bible with me to Matthew chapter 28? I'm sure it's a very familiar area of Scripture for you. Matthew chapter 28. Our sermon entitled, Making Disciples. Making Disciples. Matthew chapter 28. I'm going to begin in verse 16. But before we do that, would you go with me to the Lord in prayer? Father, so thankful... For your grace in our life. And so blessed, Lord, that you allow us the opportunity to come before you, to hear your word, to be challenged to change. And Father, we pray that you would do that in our life tonight. We've come hungry. Fill us, Lord. We pray for Pastor Jeff and the team Lord, so thankful to see them on the Sea of Galilee. We pray that you bless them, keep them safe, deliver them from any evil attack, watch over them in Jesus' name, amen. It's Matthew chapter 28, would you look with me, verse 16, then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. When they saw him, they worshipped him. Stop there if you would just for a moment. I believe this portion of scripture, just these two verses, they represent a lot of us in the church. You see, they were very obedient. Jesus told them where to meet and he, they, they met him there. Obedience is part of our faith. Jesus tells us to do something like we learned on Sunday, whatever he tells you to do, do it. And obedience is a part of our faith. Not only were they in obedience, I want you to see what else they were doing, they even met him there and they worshipped him, much like we did tonight. What an incredible opportunity for us to lift our hands in praise to God and give him glory as we worship him. And this really represents a lot of the church. This really represents a lot of what we think Christianity Christianity is. We obey and we learn and we obey and we worship. But there was a problem. You see, I think there's another portion of this that also represents the church. Would you look with me back again at verse 17? Not only did they worship him, underline this, but some doubt it. Now we're talking about the resurrected Jesus. They saw him crucified and now they see him alive. And some are there and they are doubting. Now James tells us that people who doubt are double-minded and they're unstable. In fact, James goes so far to say that they don't receive anything from the Lord because when they're asking for something, they're doubting, they're wavering, they're unstable. Matthew tells us the reason they are doubting. Let's read on a little bit further. It's the very next statement. Jesus knows what's in everyone's heart. He knows that they're doubting. And in verse 18, he says, And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Jesus has no need that you tell him what's happening in your heart. He knows exactly what's happening in their heart. He knows exactly what, that they're doubting. And he knows exactly what the problem is. They are doubting his authority. They're doubting his authority. You see, Matthew, the writer to the Jews, the writer who wrote about the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the writer who wrote about the authority of Jesus, you see, he takes an entire book to try to describe the authority of Jesus and he outlines this sentence at the end of his book because it's much earlier in Matthew chapter 7. Well, Matthew lets us know that the people marveled at the authority of his teaching. And then in Matthew chapter 8, the centurion comes because he knows that Jesus has the authority to heal. In Matthew chapter 9, Matthew highlights for us again that Jesus is able not only to heal the paralytic, but he has the authority to forgive sins. And in Matthew chapter 10, once again, Matthew trying to prove the authority that Jesus has. Listen, he says this, I'm giving you disciples authority To cast out demons you will have authority disciples to be able to undergo spiritual attack and be victorious but the people that are here at this ascension they're a little confused they're questioning the authority of jesus they're asking in their hearts are you sure you're in control you see i thought you were going to overthrow the roman government I thought now was the time that you're resurrected, that you would be the king of kings. What are you talking about? You're going to the Father. Do you know what we've been through because of you? Do you realize what Jerusalem looks like? See, Peter is the best example. You remember the little girl comes up to him and goes, you were with him. No, no, I wasn't. Same little girl comes up. No, no, I I wasn't with him. Then the crowd says, Peter, you were with them. And they say this with accusation because they want to turn Peter in. But it wasn't just Peter that was going through this. This was all those who followed Jesus Christ. Peter is just our example of one person that we see that that he's going through it. Are you sure you're in control? Because I'm hiding in my room. And the disciples were hiding up in the upper room. The Bible says the women were going out to get food. You see, they were there and they were doubting. They were doubting the authority of Jesus Christ because they were afraid. And this doubt? Well, this doubt prevented them from fulfilling their purpose. You see, Jesus has already said to them, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. But because they're doubting the authority of Jesus, instead of going out into the world, no, they were up in the upper room terrified and afraid so now Jesus says this in verse 18, I am the authority. And with that authority, look at verse 19, this is what I'm telling you. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You see, I am the authority, and I've given you a direction. I need to let you know, this direction, Jesus is saying, is not a suggestion. This is a message to every disciple of Jesus Christ that's even listening right now. He's giving the same message. He's given the same command. He says, go and make disciples. Go and make disciples don't be afraid about it. I don't want you worrying about it. I don't want you to doubt whether or not this is me or not. No, listen, I'm giving you a direction. This is not a suggestion. I want you to go and make disciples. Now, Peter, excuse me, Paul, he has to deal the same thing with Timothy. You see, this is a problem in the church. And Paul, in his second letter to Timothy, he writes him and he says this, Timothy, stir up the gifts that in you. You see, Timothy was afraid. And we know that he was afraid because the very next verse in 2 Timothy 1, verse 6, Paul says this to Timothy. God has not given us a spirit of fear. Timothy, you can't be afraid of these guys. Timothy, you've got to disciple them. I left you there as a pastor. That is your gift. Stir up your gift. Stop being afraid and make disciples because in 2 Timothy 2, verse 2, Paul says this. What I gave to you, you must give to faithful men. See, this is not a suggestion. This is a direction. You see, our job as the church is not simply to obey Jesus... Our job as the church is not to come on Wednesday and simply worship Jesus. No, while those things are vital to our faith, there's a command from Jesus that he says, listen, make disciples. It's the way of our faith. And so Jesus says this, I want you to be going. I want you to be making I want you to be baptizing, and I want you to be teaching. You see, this word go, I need to help you understand it just for a moment. It's in the Greek, and it has an understanding to help us grasp a little bit more as to what Jesus is trying to get across. He's saying this with this word go. You are to be going wherever you are who's ever in front of you, you are going to find someone and disciple them. Now, let me tell you what this discipleship of going does. You see, I believe in a Paul, Barnabas, Timothy model. You see, in this realm, it offers accountability. In my life, I have a Paul, Pastor Jeff, Pastor Jeff is someone who's walked in the faith. He's someone that has uh, uh, led, and he's someone that is a good leader. He's someone that I can follow. He's a Paul in my life who's discipling me. I have a Barnabas. I have someone that I'm walking with in faith, someone who's with me in my own life struggles, same age as I am, and we're walking together, discipling each other. And then I have a Timothy. I have someone that is younger than me, who's under me, who's not walked in the faith as much as I have, and I am pouring what I'm learning from others into his life. Paul, Barnabas, and Timothy. You see, this offers accountability. Because now I'm accountable to a leader, I'm accountable to a friend, and I'm accountable to a son in the faith, to a brother in the faith. And as I'm teaching the word of God to these various three people, here's what's happening I'm responsible to be living it. So he says, I want you to be going. I want you to be going because it offers a measure of accountability. Now, listen, this going you have to understand, don't be afraid. That's the problem with the disciples. They were afraid to disciple anyone. Listen to what Paul told Titus. I want the older women to disciple, to teach the younger women. I want the older men to teach the younger men. Now listen, this is not necessarily an age, because Timothy was a lot younger than the ones that he was discipling. This is a spiritual maturity And I have a responsibility not only to be going, but then he says make. Now this word in the same sense, I want you to be making disciples. Let me explain why. Disciples, I want you to write this down. Disciples are not born, they are made. Disciples are not born, they are made. It's why Jesus said, follow me and I will make you. It's a process, it's step by step, it's faith to faith, it's glory to glory, it's following the example of one. Let me tell you, the first church and the mistake that they made, oh, it's the Apostle John. Now, this story is not in the Bible, but it's told by John's disciple Clement, and he writes this in his commentary, and he says this, John had a young man, and he gave the young man to a pastor. He prayed over the young man, and then he left the young man. When John was traveling back many, many years later, he stopped at the pastor's house and he said, I came for my deposit. The pastor was very concerned that the great apostle John was asking him for some money and he said, but John, you didn't leave any money with us. I don't know what you're talking about. And he says, no, I want the young man that I left here. The pastor said, oh, he's dead. And what he was saying to him was not that he was dead, but that he was dead to the faith. You see, this young man, he chose to leave the church. He chose to walk away. And he went and he was a part of these bandits. As soon as the 90-year-old John heard that this man had gone to these bandits, Clement writes that he goes to the road where this young man was. And as he's going up, the bandits, they come and attack him. John is walking now, and he's going to be burglarized by these guys, but he sees the young man ahead of him. The young man begins to run away, and at 90 years old, John screams out, and he goes, Don't run. It's for you that I have come. The young man said, They could have killed you on the road. And John responded, It wouldn't have been any different than, they, than what they did to my Lord. I'm here because I love you. You see, that pastor had made a mistake. And the mistake that that pastor made was, oh, John the Apostle, he prayed for him. He'll be good. So all I have to do is dedicate my child. I just come up here, I dedicate my child to the Lord, and then the child will turn out. I don't need to raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. I can watch any movie. I can say anything. I can go any place. All I have to do is have Pastor Jeff lay his hands on that child, and all of a sudden, boom, he'll be a great Christian. That's not the way it works. We have to make disciples and we have to be making disciples. The next word he uses is the word baptizing. This word baptizing, it's immersing them into the Father who forgives them immersing them into the understanding of the Son who has saved them. It's immersing them into the understanding. It's the Spirit of God who sanctifies Him. But I need to let you know something. I'm not an American. You see, you Americans, I don't understand you people. Listen. You always come up to me and go, Hello, how are you? Fine. I'll give you the answer you want. Fine. Then your next question is this. What do you do? You see, you Americans, you're so concerned about what people do. I'm a Bahamian. We don't care what you do. We say this. Hello, how are you? Our next question is, who's your daddy? I want to know where you come from. I want to know who your family is, what island you come from, man, because that island will determine who you are, man. Let me tell you something. I'm more Bahamian than I am American. I put this accent on for you people. (laughs) Now listen, (laughs) when I moved over from the Bahamas, I couldn't say this, that, and the (laughs) other. I didn't even know what T-H was. I thought it was the letter D. That's how it's supposed to come out. I had speech therapy for years. I had to sit in a room like this for hours, trying to get my tongue to go. So this accent is for you, trust me. So, listen, Bahamians, we don't care about what you do. We care about who your father is. Because that father will determine what I think about you. Because that's your name. See, my last name is Low. And let me tell you something that last name meant something to my dad, and it meant something to his daddy, and it meant something to his daddy. And when I go out into the public, you know what I tell my children? You're a Low. And you're not representing yourself. You're representing me and your grandfather and your great-grandfather. And I want you never to forget it. You're a low. I need to let you know something. When a Jewish person is saying, baptize them in the name. Let me tell you what he's saying. I want you to immerse them into the character and the conduct and the behavior of a loving God, of a saving Savior, and a sanctifying Spirit. I want them to see it in you first. Baptize them in the name. I want them to feel just immersed. I want them to feel the love of the Father, the saving of the Savior, the sanctifying of the Spirit, that they just feel wet With the love of God. Baptize them in the name. Then he says, I want you to be teaching. Well, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Your teaching will increase your faith and their faith. Do you know how much I learn when I study the word of God? Now, you might say, well, I don't know what to teach. Buy a book. Get a commentary. Get a lexicon, get a computer program, go online to to studylight.org. Everyone in this age of information, all we have to do is walk to the bookstore, pick any book that's there, and you can learn something about Jesus. And if you say, hey, wait a second, do like my son, buy the comic strip Bible. My son and I, we have this endless argument. You know that song? We three kings of Orient are, bearing gifts we travel of our... The Bible does not say there were three kings. We have been singing bad doctrine our entire life. So, Kevin, we can't sing that song, okay? Now, here's the deal. We can sing the song. So my son, he gets the comic strip Bible. In the comic strip Bible, he comes to me. He goes, Dad, we've been having this argument for a long time about whether there's three kings or not. He opened the Bible to the comic strip Bible. He pointed at the three kings and he goes, the Bible says there are three kings. Look at them. One, two, three. And he counted the cartoons on the page. So I have theologically lost to a comic strip Bible. But I love the fact that he's digging in. I love the fact that he's digging in. Because officially this past Saturday, my 11-year-old is a conference speaker. I had him speak with me at a father-son retreat this past week to 300 men and their children. And let me tell you something. He preached about Jonah, who was a very bad son, who didn't listen to his father. And he developed five points. And I sat there with my mouth dropped learning from my 11-year-old. And you don't think you can disciple somebody? He says, teaching because you're going to learn. Now listen, Jesus' authority was not simply that he's all powerful. No, Jesus' authority is a moral authority because not only did Jesus speak the word, Jesus lived the word. He not only told people what to do, he showed people how to live this life because he is the way, he is the truth, he is the life. And so I asked the question, Jesus, how did you disciple? Because I need to learn how to do this this thing. If you're asking me to do it, I surely hope you will show me the way. Turn with me to Mark chapter 3. He's not going to let us down. Mark chapter 3. Let's take a look at how Jesus made disciples. Let's take a look at how Jesus made disciples. Mark records for us the manner of the master discipler. He records for us the manner of the master discipler. Take a look with me. It's Mark chapter three, verse 13. And he went up on the mountain and he called to him those he himself wanted and they came to him. Now, if you're taking note, there's probably going to be about six or seven of these things you want to quickly jot down. The first of them is this, listen carefully. He went up. Now, Luke chapter six tells us what he went up to do. He went up to pray All night. You see, if you want to engage in making disciples, you need to pray desperately for the ones you're going to disciple. Job offered sacrifices for each one of his children every day of his life. Today we offer the sacrifice of our lips where we pray daily for our children, not just our biological children, but our spiritual children that we are supposed to be making disciples. Now I believe that the Holy Spirit, he gives us an insight to the kind of prayer that Jesus would pray all night long through the apostle Paul. You don't need to turn there. I'm going to read it for you. It's Colossians chapter 1. This is a prayer that we can pray for those that we're discipling, for our children and our spiritual children. Listen to what the Holy Spirit prays through the Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 1 verse 9. For this reason, we also, since the day we heard it, don't cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. We pray that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. We pray and give thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. Listen, Paul is praying a prayer and I believe the Holy Spirit is showing us what we can pray that we are are, those that we're discipling are filled with wisdom. They're filled with knowledge. They're filled with the strength of the Spirit. That they are strengthened in the power of the might of God. That they might be able to fully please God and produce fruits. This prayer is one that we should post by our beds. Colossians chapter 1. You see, we need to purpose to pray for those we disciple. Secondly, I want you to see if you would look, he went up on the mountain and he called to him those he wanted. He called to them. I need you to see this. He took initiative. He didn't wait around for a divine appointment. He made the appointment. He took initiative and he went and he called 12 of the hundreds that were following him because he was purposed to fulfill scripture and make disciples of these men. But he didn't just call them. No, look what the Bible says. He wanted them. Now this word want, it means they're a person, not a project. They're a human being that deserve love. Now, I want you you to think of who you are. Now, here's something really cool. Jesus actually wants to hang around you. Like, you would be his friend. He would text you and say, hey, you want to hang out tonight? It's not like he would go, oh, great, I got to call Chet and we got to hang out because I got to disciple him. All right, tonight's our night. Okay, let's open up our Bible to Matthew chapter eight. What time is it? Got to go. It's almost nine o'clock, dude. Stop asking me about all your life questions. No, Jesus, let me tell you how he discipled. He wanted to disciple. It was in his heart to do it. He wanted to be with you. He wants to change you. And he is setting an example for us that people are people. They're not projects. goes on to say that they came to him. You see, when people know that they're wanted, they will want to be around you. When people know that they're loved, they will want to be around you. And he said that he appointed 12. Then he appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. I want you to highlight that again. He appointed 12. Listen, out of the hundreds that were there, he kept it small and he kept it intimate. There's a great book that I want to encourage all of you to read. It's called The Master Plan of Evangelism. And how Jesus took 12 people and changed the world. Imagine if everyone in this room gathered 12 people and you discipled them for a year. And then you asked those 12 people to disciple another group for another year. Imagine how many people South Bay would disciple in obedience to the command of Jesus if we just did this for five years. Hundreds? Hundreds of thousands of people discipled by the grace of God because you took the command seriously to make the disciples. Listen, we don't need fanfare to disciple people. This is all you need. You, another person, your Bible, and the power of the Holy Spirit. That's all you need. Let me tell you something. The blind man was one of the greatest disciples to the Pharisees. He says, all I know is once I was blind, but now I can see. And how many songs do we sing with that lyric in it? (laughs) He had just been saved a day, not even 24 hours. We can all disciple. We don't need the fanfare. Now, what I love about this, look what he says. He appointed 12 that he might be with them. He might be with them. Discipleship is not an event. Discipleship is a lifestyle. When you choose to disciple someone like Jesus, you're inviting them into your life. Their family, brothers and sisters. You don't just meet them on Monday. They become a part of your existence. This is what Jesus did when he called them. He says, we're going to eat together. We're going to fight together. We're going to sleep together. We're going to walk together. We're going to travel together. We're going to go retreat together. We're going to pray together. We're going to do ministry together. And for the next 18 months of your life, I own you. And you're coming into my life because I want to be with you. And I want to impart to you all of who I am. I teach a a Monday night Bible study at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. At the end of this Monday night Bible study, 50 young people invade my home. And they just come in. They come in like locusts. They eat us out of house and home. All Bible college students. And they're tired of eating the Bible college food, so they come in and they simply open up our cabinets like a vacuum. And then they open up the fridge and they eat it all. Everything. And I want them there. I want them in my home. Because some of them don't have fathers. And I want to see them, I want them to watch me be a dad. I want them to watch me when I make mistakes. And I want them to feel that they can come to my home at any time because it keeps me accountable because I don't want them walking in when I'm yelling at my wife. And I want my home to be something that the door's not locked so that you can feel that you don't need to call, you don't need to knock. You can come right on in because I want you to be with me. I want you to do life with me. That's how Jesus discipled. It's important to remember that when they're with you, you're not leading them to you. You're leading them to Jesus. You can't ever forget the advice that Mary gave. Whatever he tells you to do, do it. You've got to protect yourself from becoming the Messiah because you're not. You're a discipler. You're a servant. Your responsibility is not to control them, but to lead them to Jesus. That you might be with them. And he says this, that I might send them. Send them. My brother was an F-18 fighter pilot. It blew my mind that at the age of 22, they gave him an $18 million plane. The U.S. government gave him an $18 million plane and said, fly over Japan. Blew my mind. Imagine if the church would give a 22-year-old $18 million and said, go for it. See what the Lord will do. Man, you give me $18 million right now, I will take over the nation of Iran and everybody will be saved. You may explain ISIS would not exist. Because I would go in and I would tell everybody about Jesus. I'm like, dude, you're serving the wrong God. Give me $18 million. I'll buy a big suit so they can't kill me. Understand. (laughs) How is it that the U.S. government could give my brother and take that kind of risk with a 22-year-old, but we're afraid to give the church to young people? We're, we're, we're afraid to like let a young person have a chance. You know why? They may make a mistake. How many mistakes did we make? In fact, what have I said tonight that's probably not right at 45 years old? <laughs> See, he says, I'm going to bring you in and I'm going to take a risk with you and I'm going to send you out because my job is to give you wings to fly, not to clip your wings. I'm bringing you in to send you. Now, what did he send them with? Take a look what he says in Mark chapter three. He sends them and he says, and he says, he sends them out to preach, to have power, to heal sickness and to cast out demons. Let me tell you, I'm sending you out so you can preach. Well, in order for you to preach, you need to know the word. So I got to teach you the word before I can send you out. And in order for you to have power, I need to introduce you to the Holy Spirit and you need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit and you need to understand who the Holy Spirit is so that you can go out in power. But if you're going to if you're gonna heal people, you need to know what your spiritual gifts are because you may not have the gift of healing. You may have the gift of service. You may have the gift of ministry. So we need to do ministry together for a little while and we need to understand each other so I can watch your life and see what your giftings are so I can invest into those gifts. And if I'm going to send you out, listen, to cast out demons, you better know who the devil is because when you go out, you will be fighting war. I don't know about you, but when I wake up in the morning, C.T. Studd, he always used to say this, C.T. Studd, great missionary of our our era, he said, when I wake up in the morning, I wake up to sound the alarms of hell. C.T.'s up, you better watch out. And when we send our disciples out, those that we're discipling, do we prepare them for the spiritual war or do they come back beat up because we've not prepared them? I want you to take a look if you would. Look who Jesus sent. Blows my mind. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Borogenes, the sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon, the Canaanite. Now, those of you seasoned saints, let's do a quiz. Everyone close your Bible. No, I'm kidding. If everyone closed their Bible and I had to say, name the 12 disciples, how many of you would go? I know this. It's always refreshing when we think we're seasoned just to open the word to realize how much more we have to learn. We all need discipleship, all of us. Look at these guys that he sent out. I want you to keep in mind, God has chosen to use the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. If you're a fool for Jesus, go ahead and raise your hand. Listen, he's chosen to use the weak things of the world to put to shame the strong. Go ahead. Okay, who's a weak thing? Okay, listen to this. He's chosen to use the base things of the world. That means scum of the earth. Raise your hand, okay? He's chosen us. You're on his team, you bunch of scum. You know, it's like, really? He picks from the bottom of the barrel. I can't believe, let me tell you something. My first time that I spoke was in front of 500 people. All I remember was this. He's going down. I passed right out on the stage. I woke up in the hospital. I said, what happened? I go, you passed out. I, what? I passed out? And then I thought, oh my goodness. What else did I do in front of all those people? And they go, no, you're safe. I can't believe that I'm standing in front of you. I was terrified to talk in front of people. Me. And you guys are going, well, maybe you should practice a little bit more. (laughs) These guys lacked spiritual authority, authority. Excuse me, they lacked spiritual understanding. They were constantly fighting with jealousy. They had a lamentable lack of faith. They deserted Jesus in his greatest time of need. And they were helpless in the face of challenge. And to these guys, Jesus would say, you are Simon, but you shall be Cephas. Because Jesus had hope in one thing. If you follow me, I will disciple you. And I will make you what you're called to be. And that's why the son of thunder. That's why the son of thunder. Now let me tell you what the son of thunder means. He was an angry young man. So angry, when they were passing through the Samaritan village, James and John came up with a great idea when the Samaritans just said, you can't sleep the night here. John comes up to Jesus and he goes, I got a great idea, Jesus. Let's burn them all. Bring down fire from heaven and just, just gone, Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus looks at these guys and goes, you don't know what spirit you're of. And I wonder if he went to God. Are you sure? You know, it's like... Hello, John, I'm here on love, for God so loved the world, not burned the world. In fact, John, listen, you're going to come back in just a year, and you're going to win all these people over to Jesus. If you burn them all now, and they become barbecued, that's going to be a problem. (laughs) To the son of thunder, he made him the apostle of love. The apostle of love. To James, who went to Jesus and said, I'd like to be your vice president. I want to be the first in this new kingdom thing. (laughs) To that James, he was the first martyr of the apostles and he lost his head. He was willing to die and he had been changed from the man who wanted prominence to the one who was willing to give up his life. Follow me. I'll make you a disciple. Doubting Thomas became the devoted disciple who was speared in India. Follow me and I will make you. Matthew, who hated the Jews and wanted to tax and collect them, he would write the book to the Jews to try to win them over. He went from hatred to love. Jesus says, follow me and I will make you. But the one name that blows my mind out of all these names is Judas. I can't believe it. I can't believe that Jesus would know what Judas is going to do and that he would still pick him. It blows my mind. Let me tell you something. I had a friend in Liberia, my best friend. 10 years of relationship. 10 years. I was almost dead with malaria. And this man saved my life. I brought him over to the United States of America. I went to go pick him up at his apartment. And there in his bed was a letter. Dear Chet, I only was your friend so that you would bring me to the United States of America and now I am gone. Goodbye. Let me tell you something. If I would have known at the very beginning of my relationship that he was going to do that, there is no way I was picking him on my team. How in the world, Jesus, did you pick Judas? I think John helps us understand in John chapter 13. In John chapter 13, verse 2, this is what the Bible says, that Jesus, thinking about his disciples, and he loved them, he loved them to the end. He loved Judas. And it wasn't based on Judas's performance. It was based on his being. God is love. It wasn't based on whether Judas would betray him or not. It was based on who Jesus Jesus is. You see, I need to explain something to you. This kind of love is unconditional because your disciples are going to mess up. They're going to do things that will blow your mind. They're going to hurt you. And when you expose yourself to them and become vulnerable, they may even use you against you. But Jesus continued with Judas. Paul. Paul. You know what his average was? 60-40. 60s 60 followed, 40% fell. Read. He had just as almost just as many men fall as those that stayed with him. Jesus he says like this, you're going to throw some seed. And out of the four seeds that you throw, only one is going to grow and produce 30, 60, 90. But does that mean we quit? Does that mean we say I'm not going to make any more disciples? No. Hebrews chapter 5, we are not those who draw back. Christians don't quit. Christians bear all things. We believe all things. We hope all things. We endure all things. Love never fails. People are going to let you down. What's your choice? I believe it's why Paul said in 2 Timothy, Timothy, teach with all long-suffering Don't give up on people, Timothy. And I know what they're like. And I know they're threatening you. And I know they're saying all kinds of things about you, Timothy. But you've got to stir up your gift. You've got to choose to give to them what I gave to you. Your decision must be to follow the example and the command of Jesus. Go and make disciples. Finally. All right, so I'm going to do this thing. And we're all going to have a challenge to go out and find some one person that we can invest our life into. So Pastor Chet, tell me, what will this disciple look like? What what should they be growing to become? I want you to write down four verses. Four verses. Number one. John chapter 13, verse 35, Jesus says this. They'll know you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Love will be the mark. And as you see them growing in love, not knowledge, knowledge puffs up, love builds up. As you see them growing in love, you're being successful. Number two, if you're taking note, it's John chapter 15. John chapter 15, verse 8. Listen to what Jesus says. John chapter 15, verse 8. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you'll be my disciples. John chapter 15, verse 8. Bear fruit. When you see love, joy, peace, kindness, long suffering starting to come out of them, your discipleship is working. John chapter 15, verse 8. John chapter 8, verse 31. Listen to this other mark of discipleship given to us by Jesus. He says this, and you shall, excuse me, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. As you see them making decisions, that go along with the Word and not with the world, you're being successful. Abiding in the Word. Finally, and I believe this is the true test of discipleship, it's Luke chapter 9. And Jesus is talking about what it means to follow Him And in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, I want you to hear what he says as a mark of discipleship. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Self-denial. When I was a missionary in Liberia, we very rarely got American food. And one day, tuna fish and mayonnaise came into town. Oh, happy day. I never looked at a can of tuna with such gluttony ever before in my life again. Ever before. <laughs> I went out to a restaurant uh, uh, with a couple of friends yesterday, and as we're driving away, one of my dear friends he said, "Lord, forgive us for gluttony." And I thought, that's exactly how I felt when I saw that tuna fish, and I made that tuna fish sandwich. And in Liberia, let me tell you, you never eat by yourself. There's a saying: "G ake dedi." It means, come and eat with me. And whenever you're sitting eating and someone walks in the room, you invite them to your bowl. Now, here's the problem. They will take their hand and put it in your bowl, and by the time you go back for bite number two, it's gone. <laughs> so this whole thing, I was like over it, okay? <laughs> we, uh, we, we Americans, we get our plate. You know, even Bahamians are selfish in that way. It's like, we, we want our plate of food, okay? <laughs> And Bahamians, we're worth much worse than Americans. When we, you give us that little, you know, you know how you guys give that little uh, paper plate, like, oh, you can only have that much food? We don't care, we pile high. <laughs> you guys are like, oh, and we're like skyscraper, okay? <laughs> Falling off, walking to our table, we don't care. We've got no shame, okay? So my wife, she makes a tuna fish sandwich. She makes a tuna fish sandwich. I come in the house and she goes, that meant it's in the room. I went in the room, I took this tuna fish sandwich and I like this, shut the windows, the curtains. I I didn't want anyone to even smell it going out. I'm walking back up the road, my stomach begins to go, and I looked up into heaven, I go, It was just a tuna fish sandwich. (laughs) Can't I be greedy with just a sandwich? And I realized how much more I need to be discipled. Jesus says this. It's a command. And it's a challenge to each one of you. Go and make disciples. So before we close tonight, I want you to think of one person. One person you're going to take a year and pour into their life. Just one. We'll start with one. Next year we'll do 12. (laughs) But take one person and pour into your life. Watch how your life will change. Every day, I send a text message my devotions to my six boys and my three girls, wife and their wives. I send another devotion to a Miami Dolphins player and a New England Patriots player. They use my devotions to disciple the team. I send another one to a youth pastor friend of mine. I send another one to a dear friend every single day. And we go back and forth. Well, he said this to me. He said this to me. And I'm reading now those that I'm discipling teach me. And I love it. Why don't you find yours? It will change your life. Father, thank you so much that you gave us this command. I pray now in the name of Jesus that you would give us the name of someone that we can disciple. In Jesus' name, amen. Worship team is going to come forward. I'm going to ask you to stand. The pastors will be here. Uh, If you want prayer after the service, uh, be inviting them forward. Uh, If you would like some prayer, please come forward. They would love to uh, pray with you. Um, So thankful once again to be able to be with you guys this week. The Lord bless you and keep you. Let his face shine upon you. In Jesus' name, amen.